have your eye. One of your eyes is looking up at the wall. Do you have a wall eye? <laughs> and she says, oh, well, yeah, I had an accident about 20 years ago, and it knocked my eye out that way. And so I'm like, oh, thanks for telling me. Could I get that chocolate down? <laughs> one, let's see the next child, this is Lily. Lily would do that kind of thing. So we have Lily and Sam, who are the most, the bigger of the children, would do things like that. And then the next one is going to be Isaac. Isaac would never do that at a bakery counter. Isaac is much more kind of socially cognizant, sensitive, kind of um, emotionally intelligent. And then the next one is Matilda, isn't she so cute? would never do that at the bakery counter. So really, so you understand my family. Two of them would do that at the bakery counter and two wouldn't. And then of the parents, I would do that at the bakery counter. <laughs> and Scott definitely would never do anything like that at a bakery counter. So we have a pretty even mix of, um, so that's our kids. And you'll probably hear some more stories this weekend about our family. So let me ask you an honest question. How many of you uh, had apprehensions about coming here this weekend for some reason or another? Okay. How many of you were just looking forward to it and had no apprehensions at all? Okay, that's, that's good. How many of you were neutral? And we had some neutrals, right? So uh, after 20 years of listening to people, I've learned something about women and women's retreats, and that is for some of us, something like this has a way of making us feel a little unsafe for one reason or another. And I have been uh, taking some classes recently, trying to uh, understand people better, trying to understand <coughs> myself better. And I actually didn't plan on sharing on this topic this evening, but as I was um, there at the back, the Holy Spirit was whispering to me. So we're going to start with something here. I'm going to offer you something for free that I didn't expect to share with you. So there's a thing uh, that started in the 1950s. Uh, it started with a guy called John Bowlby, who was a researcher and doctor. And he studied children in the 1950s who at that time, if you were sick with polio or um, appendicitis or any kind of ailment, your parents were only allowed to visit you in the hospital for one hour a week. Oh my God. Yeah, that was standard practice in the United States and in the UK. And so this uh, psychologist started studying children who were left alone in the hospital and began to study how they would react when their parents came for that first visit. And then a week later for the second, he monitored the children. And he was the first person to come up with something that is called attachment theory. Um, and another guy, a uh, lady after him called Mary Ainsworth, developed it into what I'm about to show you. So they came up with this quadrant to describe the way that humans attach to one another. And so the idea is that from our moms and dads and our family environment growing up, 
we develop a GPS system that will stay switched on in our subconscious for the rest of our lives. But it can be changed. That's the hopeful part of it. And it's in the kind of subconscious part of your brain. And the subconscious part of your brain works. Um, it, it takes a 20th of a second for you to be governed by a subconscious thought. But it takes half a second for you to be governed by a conscious thought. That means that the real person in charge of you is your subconscious mind, right? And the trouble is, is that thoughts create feelings, and feelings create behaviors, and behaviors reinforce thoughts, which create feelings, which create behaviors. And so in our relationships with one another as grown-ups, we are being governed by a GPS system that we were given as children. And the, the kind of place you want to be is up here. It's called a secure attachment. And that's kind of where, as a child, mum and dad and the siblings around you were um, safe. They were predictable. You knew you were going to get your needs met. If you had a need, somebody noticed fairly quickly and responded. And, and that puts you, like, you become a secure person. And that means kind of for the rest of your life, that will, and, and then of course early friendships and stuff play into this. But for the most part, you can behave in a secure way in relationships. Okay, now this is plan A, okay? So plan A is, this is, this is baby you. It doesn't look like a baby, it looks like a kind of weird, a kind of weird alien baby. Which you are not, by the way, so just so you know. Let's say this is, you know, your key attachment figures in your life. So plan A would be, um, you know, a secure attachment. Like, you know you're going to get your needs met. But if plan A doesn't work, if you're not getting your needs met, something else happens. And it goes one of two ways, okay? And this would be governed by, because attachment is something we need to survive as children, you know, this gets into the very core of our need to survive. And so if, our, if we don't have secure attachments as kids, it kicks on our fight, flight, or freeze. Has everybody heard of that? The fight or flight thing that's kind of in your limbic system there where something fires, your inner fire alarm goes off and you need to take action. Well, the action that you would take would to develop a new um, attachment system, okay, and that would put you in being either avoidant, and I'll explain that to you in a second, or anxious. The anxious attachment is, oh my gosh, I need something, I, my needs aren't being met, this is frightening, so I will make it happen. I'm going to fight for it. So I'm going to be hyperactive. I'm going to be really screamy and clingy. I'm going to be really over the top. You will notice me. I'm going to be really angry. I'm going to be big, big, big. You will have to see me and you will have to meet my needs. Or I'm going to be really needy or really sick. I'm going to make you meet my needs. That would be the kind of fight thing. The flight thing would be the avoidant, like, whoa, this is scary, and so I'm just going to shut everything off. I'm going to just disappear and hope that I get through this. 
And then the one in the other quadrant would be the disorganized or the fearful, which is a kind of, this is a more extreme thing and it would show up like if there's been trauma or abuse or something. And that is a kind of very dysregulated way of attaching to people that causes a lot of problems later on. So why, why am I saying this? Why, why did the Holy Spirit ask me to start with that? Mm -hmm. Is that um, when we look at the ways that we, the GPS system we've been given as children, and we'll talk a little bit more about that over the weekend, it helps us to realize that there's ways that we relate to one another that are being governed by something way subconsciously inside of us. Um, whether it's to kind of avoid people or to, like at a retreat like this. Let me give you an example. How would this work out? Well, at a retreat like this, if you find this anxiety, well, I want to be in this room with people. Oh, but they're doing that in that room. <sighs> I want to be there too. I want to be in both rooms. Because I don't want to miss anything, you know. Some of that can be a sanguine personality, but some of it can be a, a genuine anxiety, like I have to be in charge of all my attachments. If I'm not, if I'm not running this relationship, then it's going to fail. Because somewhere inside of me, I believe if I don't pick up the phone or if I don't make this happen, I will be completely alone. That would be me, by the way. I've been working this through for a couple of years. It's a terrible realization to realize that you're kind of governed by that more than you thought you would were. And then the other example of being avoidant is a bit more like, I really want to be, I'm here, and I want to be in on this. But I don't like all the, the connection stuff. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> so you just kind of like, I'm just going to sit right back here. I wish I could have got my own room. <laughs> You know, just need, I just need to have enough space to know that I'm safe. Because space makes me feel safe. Okay? In this quadrant, being really close, being really close to everything and everyone makes me feel safe. But the other one, having a good bit of distance is what makes me feel safe. Does anybody see themselves in this? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, someone stayed at my house. And they left one of those disgusting mirrors that is a times 20 magnification. <laughs> they left it in my guest room. I picked it up and I thought, like a cyclops was looking back at me. A cyclops with, with craters the size of the moon staring back. It was, I think I actually need therapy just for looking in that mirror. I don't know why people need those mirrors. Anyway, this quadrant can feel a little bit like that. You know, we begin to think about who are we really, really, really? And if we can be courageous enough to be curious about who we are really, really, really? The key is that we can actually change. And even those GPS systems can change. It's amazing. It says in Psalm 32, God says... I will guide you with my eye, and I will teach you in the pathway you should go. And we all know there's neural pathways inside of our brain, right? 
God can help you with new pathways. Have you ever um, used the GPS that's in your vehicle and you go into a new neighborhood and your GPS system is going, I don't know this. They didn't give this to me when they made me, you know, because it's a new road and your uh, system in your car hasn't been updated. And so you have to go to your phone, right, and use the Google GPS. Does that, can you give me yeah. a wave? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, so sometimes when we're navigating relationships, we hit things and we don't know what to do. God can help us. And God can even download into us new systems where we find that we feel more successful in our relationships. And I think in the end, that's what makes us happy. In the end, what makes you happy is feeling that you're succeeding at being a friend or a mum or a wife. And what I find so hopeful is this idea that even in the neuroscientific realm now, they're finding out that our brains are neuroplastic. They can, it can change till the day we die. And, and if you're someone who thinks you can never change, then you're... you're exactly the opposite of what is being discovered in neuroscience and in opposition to what God says, Romans 12.1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I can change you if you let me change your mind. The Lord is saying, I can change you if you let me change your mind. I'd like to read from 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to have it up here. This is a good story. Now, David says, so, okay, so the background here is that, you know, Saul is not king anymore. He's dead. Jonathan is dead. They've both been killed by the Philistines. Um, David is now king and is doing really well. And David, being a man of integrity, asked this question. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Then the king said, so I'm jumping to verse three. Oh, no, I'm repeating verses in my thing. Sorry, let me read it from here. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. You always like to have somebody like that in your yes. house. <laughs> and then the king said, Is there not still someone at the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, um, the, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, this place here, Lodabar, is the land of nothing. That's wow. the literal translation. Wow. Here is this lame guy in the land of nothing. And I'll just give you a spoiler alert here before I get to the end of the scripture. I think in some ways we are all Melchizedek. We're, no, we're all Mephibosheth, thank you. <laughs> we are all Mephibosheth. We all, in some way, are a bit lame, and we know it. <laughs> it's true. And in some ways, there is a feeling deep inside that there is a nothingness in there. That sometimes we find ourselves um, overwhelmed by feelings of 
nothingness, loneliness, barrenness. And here's this guy, Mephibosheth. And let's read on now. When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. Back, back, up, back up one. Back, back up one. We're on verse six. No, right there at the bottom. No, there we go. Then they, Meribal. Some, somewhere his name got changed. And Meribal means um, Baal is my master. Baal is in charge of me. Yeah. And if you know anything about Baal worship, it was all about performance. You know, if you do it perfectly, then, then you'll get rewarded. If you tick all the boxes, you'll be looked after. And it was a very fear-driven way of living. It was a very performance-driven way of living. It was a very perfectionistic way of living. And I don't know at which point Meribal became Mephibosheth, but when David looks at this lame, crippled guy who's been hidden his whole life, and poor Mephibosheth, his story is that he was born a normal kid, right? He could walk, and then when he was five years old, there was the news came to the the palace where they were living. Oh my goodness! Saul and Jonathan, his uh, father and his grandfather, had been killed by the Philistines, and they're coming to get us. And it records in the book of Chronicles that Mephibosheth's nurse picked him up. He was five years old, and she started running with him out of the palace. And somehow, in the chaos, she dropped him, and it says he became lame and he could never walk again. Now, how many of us have the feeling that in the chaos of our families growing up, somehow we got mishandled, and somehow it's affected the way we've walked since that time? I know I have felt that way. And so here's David looking at this guy who, um, you know, in those days to be disabled was, was really shame, a shameful thing. And this man who had been called Meribal, David looks at him and he says, Mephibosheth. The, the, the name Mephibosheth means your shame has now been scattered. Your shame is over. Your shame is over. And he answered, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. That's the words of your Jesus right there. If you're lame and you're feeling ashamed and you've been caught in this whole thing of performance, perfectionism, fearfulness, you have a Prince of Peace out there who is asking the question, is there anybody I can show kindness to? Is there anybody that I can deal kindly with? For Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Wow. Cripples were not invited to the table in those days, but to sit at the table of the king was one of the greatest honors you could have. 
And so here's David giving him a lifetime pension, land, and a continual place at his table. Then he, Mephibosheth, bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He's got some self-image issues, right? He sees himself as not worthy. As for Mephibosheth, let's go to verse 11. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. How many of you are aware there's something in your life where you feel a bit lame, where you know something doesn't work right? And how many of you are comforted to know that God's response to you is to want to show you kindness? You know, sometimes we think if we're under the the mindset of being like Maribal, Baal is my master, we develop this view of God that we have to heal our lameness first to please him. We have to get it right first and maybe then we can come to the king's table. We have to fix it, we have to perform, we have to tick the boxes. And if we can just do that, maybe we'll get an invite to the table where all the beautiful people are. I am so glad that God is not like that. I am so glad that we have a God who in his heart is saying, is there somebody to whom I can show kindness? Is there someone to whom I can show kindness? And I love this story because Mephibosheth said, you know, he's really honest. He's like, well, why are you looking at such a dead dog as me? It's an interesting thing that there's a a phrase that really sticks with me. It's by a guy called Dan Siegel, who's a a researcher for um, trauma and therapy. And he says this thing, he says, if we can can, uh, say it, we can feel it. And if we can feel it, we can heal it. So if you can say it, you can feel it. And and most of us are haunted by the ghosts of things we've never been able to put into words. I still remember being uh, probably 21, 22 years old, and I was becoming aware through a series of nightmares I was having that perhaps my parents' very kind of acrimonious divorce had affected me much more than I had ever admitted. And I remember uh, a friend of mine from the church I'd started attending suggested that I went to see a counsellor. And this particular counsellor, her name was Maureen, she was attending our church. So I went and spoke with her and she's like, sure, come in next week. You know, I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't really know what a counsellor was or anything. I certainly didn't go to the kind of family that went to counsellors. You know, I came from a British family and you keep calm and carry on. You don't say anything, you know. You know, there's something really funny about British people that I've reflected on. That if a child hurts themselves, 
the, the kind of posture, and it may have changed now, but certainly when I was little, and probably even more so when my mom was little, you know, if a children's running to you and they're crying, the first response is to go, oh, shh, shh, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. And so before you get to, I'm being comforted now, you're being told, like, sh just shut it down, okay? That we don't do that here. God save the queen, you know. <laughs> and so where is the other English girl that's here, Chrissy? Would you say that's true? Yes. Was that true in your, am I? Yeah, like, keep calm and carry on. Absolutely. And so, you know, I went along, it was this lady, she was a Northern Irish lady, and I sat down in the chair, and she looked at me, and she said, um, Stephanie, can you tell me why you've come here today? And I thought, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Is this what this is going to be like? And I'm kind of like, eh, 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 how do I get out of this? And, and so I just started, you know, this totally incoherent, you know, and when you're really incoherent, it means there's really, really a problem. And I just started kind of incoherently rambling, and she's just looking at me, and she says, she says, ask me the same question again. Stephanie, why have you come here? And I just, I'd never said it. I had never said it. And if you can't say it, you can't really feel it. But if you won't feel it, you can't heal it, right? Yeah. And I remember just having to get the words out of my mouth as a grown-up woman. It was really hard that my dad left home. And I, I think I was frightened to say it because intuitively you know if you say it, you feel the momentum of the emotion that's stuck underneath those words. And the interesting thing is, just a little bit of understanding I've been getting about the brain, is that all of your language function is, is kind of in the left side of your brain. But all of the emotion, and especially trauma emotion, is stored more in the right side of your brain. And once you start sharing, you start integrating, like allowing your left brain to connect with the emotion in the right brain, and then the emotion in the right brain to integrate with the language skills, that's when you start to allow real processing to happen. But it, it's painful. And, and here is uh, Mephibosheth, and he's putting words to it. I'm a dead dog. I may as well, I mean, why have you even brought me here? And I recently went through something uh, in my own journey where I became aware of yet another thing that was a bit lame. And this kind of sounds funny until you get to the bit that really isn't funny. So, for me, anyway. So, um, how many of you in here have heard about my aeroplane issue? Some of you doing the school, okay. So, um, you know, I am 43 now. I just turned 43. And both my parents died by the time I was 38. So by the time I turned 38, my brother had died, my dad had died, and my mum had died. And so I had lost all of my family that I'd grown up with. That's an unusual situation to find yourself in. Now, I have always been a nervous flyer. But when that happened, the symptoms became much more exacerbated. And I actually began to, I can say it now, but I wasn't aware at the time, 
I would get on an aeroplane and I would start to have the most extreme symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And so what that would look like would be something like this. I'd get on the aeroplane and as soon as I got on that, the Stephanie that you know and hear right now went into the stratosphere somewhere, and I became Aeroplane Stephanie. Aeroplane Stephanie is different from the other Stephanie, and if you don't believe me, you speak to somebody who's flown with me, and I'm normally kind of very cognitive, level-headed, balanced person, I get on an aeroplane, and the second I'm on that, I, you know, so PTSD symptoms, scanning, you're looking around for danger. And, and danger was anyone who looked like they could be a terrorist, which was anyone. And, you know, I'd be looking, this was the particular thing, I would watch the expressions of the air stewards and the air stewardesses because I thought they knew something. And they, like, they knew there was really something wrong with this plane. And they were actually all a bit nervous about it because the captain had tipped them off, right? So they all knew. So I'd be watching, like, how worried do they look, you know? And then, uh, yeah, I would sit down, so the scanning, start to feel panicky. Another symptom of post-traumatic stress is notions of grandeur, like when you think <coughs> that you actually have more power than you could ever have. And for me, this meant that I had to look at the wing of the plane. It was my job, if I didn't do it, there were gonna be huge problems. So I had to sit by the window, and I had to be able to see the wing of the plane. Remember Amy said to me, why? Why do you have to look at the wing? I said, because it's my job. <laughs> Don't ask questions. At the very worst point, I thought that if I flushed the toilet whilst I was still in the bathroom, it would affect the overall merit of the plane. I don't know why I thought this, but this, so the reason I'm painting a picture for you is because when something is wrong inside, it comes out somewhere, right? Yeah. And the interesting thing about trauma, which by the way is on a spectrum, I'm using the word trauma, and some of you are thinking, well, I've never been traumatized. Yes, you have! like a knobbly thing. So your brain, right here, on your hand here, and down your wrist, that's called your um, reptilian brain. Okay, so that's the, that's kind of the, what they say is the, the kind of oldest part of your brain. I don't believe that, because I don't believe in evolution. But this is where all the kind of like very basic things are, like eating, breathing, and the part, this part of your brain is always asking the question, am I safe? Okay, then in, in the, on top of that in your brain is, it would come around like this, both sides, if we did it properly, but this is called your limbic system. And this is where like um, your amygdala is in there, some of you may have heard of that, that's the part that goes off like your brain's fire alarm when you think you're under threat. The trouble is your amygdala is not a reliable fire alarm. It goes off when it shouldn't, and that's where we get into all kinds of problems in relationships. You know, imagine if you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, road narrows ahead, 
as a you know, normal human adult, you will say, oh, the road narrows ahead, I should watch for that. But if you, um, if you were not a normal functioning driving adult, you might say, you might see the sign that said road narrows ahead, and if you had misinterpreted that sign or you didn't understand it, you might scream and hit the brakes and go, oh my gosh, we're gonna die! You know, like pull over and cause all kinds of problems on the road. We do that in our relationships, right? Like, we get like a sign off someone, like, did they not want to talk to me? Were they not answering my text? Oh my gosh, it's over, it's over! <laughs> they're narrowing on me! It's like, no, they're busy, they've got a lot going on. You're misreading the signs because you, you know, your fire alarm, your, your amygdala will hijack everything. It will send off massive warning signals when they don't need to be there, and it ruins things. So. Um, in the limbic system here is your hippocampus, that's where all your, um, auto, your autobiography is stored, like your understanding of who you are and who everyone else is, um, all of your emotions, your memories, both explicit memories, they're memories that you know for a fact, like I know for a fact, I know Marilee, and I can tell you memories we have together. But then there's implicit memory, and that's things that you've retained, but you don't remember. It, it's informing you as much as your explicit memory is, but you don't remember it. This is the stuff that happened when you were in the womb. This is the stuff that happened when you were a baby. This is the stuff that happened before you have memory, and it is informing you and informing your amygdala as much as the stuff you do remember. Whoa. Yes, whoa, it is really interesting stuff. So that's all in there, and then go like this. This top part is called, so this part's asking, am I safe? This part is asking, am I loved? Do people like me, am I loved? Because I'm loved, I'm safe. This other part that comes over is called your uh, cortex, or your frontal cortex. This is where all your best thinking happens. It's your executive function. Um, this part asks the question, what can I learn from this? And this is where intuition is, perception, brilliant thinking, inventiveness, all of that stuff. But also the voice of reason is in there. And I think when we hear the voice of God, it's up in here. So what happens when your amygdala, when your brain's fire alarm goes off and you get all wound up, is you literally flip your lid. That's where that expression comes from. And your frontal cortex, the part of you that says, it's just a road narrowing sign, don't freak out, just disengages for a minute. And all you have is raw, am I loved, am I safe, this is terrible, I'm ending all of my friendships, and I'm moving to a place where no one will know I am ever again. Okay, I'm off the grid now. You know, that kind of like extreme thing. And then all the cortisol, all the stress hormones go pumping through your body. And for any human, it takes you 20 minutes to recover once you have that chemical shockwave through your body. You are like on high alert. Why am I saying this? The, I was go oh, so the aeroplane, aeroplane Stephanie. Aeroplane Stephanie has flipped, flipped her lid within two seconds of getting on the aeroplane. So my only, my whole grid is, am I safe? Even am I loved goes out the way. I don't even care if I'm loved, I just care if I'm safe. And so, you know, I would start panicking, the plane would take off, and I got to the point where I couldn't even fly without taking some kind of tranquilizers. 
which was quite funny because nobody told me that you couldn't have a glass of wine when you took the tranquilizer because I didn't have a take drug. So one time, this is really bad, but just keeping it real, Mary and I go flying to speak at a retreat somewhere. I don't even know where. I was on my way to minister somewhere. And I, the movie on the plane was some one of those terrible Taken movies, you know, with Liam Neeson. Right, so no, but I'm watching that. And then, and then a, a few weeks later, somebody says to me, oh my gosh, that movie was terrible, that new Liam Neeson movie with the, with the, I'm thinking, it was really nice movie. <laughs> I really loved the bit where Maria Von Trapp came out and sang that song on the couch. It was lovely. It was so relaxing. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's the drugs. <laughs> Everything's great. <laughs> so what's happening is I'm, I'm in such a state. I, can't, I actually can't manage myself on the plane. Well, this is what I realized through a friend of mine who has known me since I was 11 years old. She's a therapist now. We were hanging out a couple of years ago. And she said to me, Stephanie, I know you, and this has nothing to do with airplanes. She says, this is post-traumatic stress. You have all of the symptoms. We just need to figure out what it's actually triggering. And as her and I just kind of excavated down to the bottom, what we got to was the, the first time I ever flew on an airplane, which actually, to me, in my explicit memory, was a very nice memory. I was with my mom and my dad and my brother. But as she began to kind of dig around that memory a little bit with me, what we realized, and I had just, this was, this was like retained but not remembered, was that that holiday I went on with mom, dad, and my brother was booked, and then my dad left home because he'd met another woman. But being British, they didn't want to waste the holiday, so they decided to go anyway. And as a little girl, as I really pressed into it, I realized that I had this feeling on the airplane, my whole family's falling apart, but no one's telling me the truth. They all know something bad is happening, but no one will tell me. And it feels so scary. It feels like everything is falling apart. And what happened is, is that neurons that uh, fire together, wire together. That's why with PTSD, when you associate uh, an object or a sensation or a sound with something traumatic. Um, oh, I didn't show you this. So yeah, uh, a, a, a regular memory will look, not it doesn't look like that, but let's imagine it's got clear boundaries. But a trauma memory is shaped like that. And so the, the impact of the trauma goes into places in your brain that it shouldn't go. So the experience of my parents splitting up suddenly and quite traumatically shouldn't have got triggered on an airplane, but because, because my neurons that fire together wire together in my little five-year-old brain, I'm thinking, well, my whole life is falling apart, but no one's telling me the truth those neurons wired together with the experience of being on an airplane. So here I am, you know, in my late 30s, 40s, it gets re-triggered, reactivated through the death of my parents. And when I'm on an airplane, I'm looking at the, the people in charge, the grown-ups, the air stewards, and I'm thinking, something really bad is happening, but no one will tell me the truth. And I just start absolutely panic attacks, all of it completely flipping out. The good news is, the Lord can meet us in these things, right? Yeah. 
And I just want you to know that I flew to Toronto a few days ago with no drugs. Yay. <laughs> and I've flown the last two years with absolutely no drugs. And, and maybe I'll get to that story of how the Lord really brought healing to that. But this stuff works. You know, the things that trigger you don't have to trigger you. And I, if you had said to me, Stephanie, in two years, you're going to be get, able to get on an airplane and you'll be really calm. I actually wouldn't have believed you. I would have just thought, you know, I think this is just one of those things I'm always going to have to deal with. And I just accepted it as the thing I hate. And, and yet God came in and has really brought freedom in that area. But one of the questions going into that that the Lord was asking me was the question that Jesus asks um, the man at the pool of Bethsaida, which is the question, do you want to be well? Mm. And I just want to ask you that at the beginning of this weekend. Do you want to be well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at this story. This is John 5. I'm going to read from verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called Bethsaida having five porches. Of course, five is the number of grace. It represents grace in scripture. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. See, lame. How many of us feel lame? Waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down to a certain place at a certain time. Ladies, you are at a certain place at a certain time this weekend. I want to encourage you. And went into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. 38 years. How many of you have been stuck with an infirmity, maybe emotionally, for 38 years? Yeah. And you think you are stuck with it, right? When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. Ladies, whatever it is, Jesus knows you've been in that condition a long time. And he says to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stood up. And when I'm coming, then the other one gets in before me. And I've tried and I've been for any healing. And I went to see a counselor and I've already done it. And I just don't know what else to do. Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day of rest. The Sabbath is not the day of Maribel, the day where we serve Baal, where we are trying to perform, we're trying to make it happen ourselves. The day of rest is not the day of anxious attachments or avoidant attachments. The Sabbath day is the day of being securely attached to the one who comes to the sheep gate, our shepherd who comes to find us and he knows the condition that we're in. It's the day of the king that says, is there anybody here this weekend to whom I could show kindness? Yes, that lame person there. And we can come. But as we close up this evening, if we could have some music playing, I'm going to have you do a little exercise to help you connect with this because we need to be able to say certain things because if we say it, we can feel it.
And if we can feel it, we can heal it. And just like Mephibosheth voiced that kind of self-belief, you know, I'm just a dead dog. Why would you even bother with me? You know, and if we could fill that in, that, that his narrative there, it might be like, um, you know, no one loves me. I've been rejected by everyone. I'm irritating to people. People are fed up with my issues. You know, whatever it is he thought. I've learned that one way we can zero in on giving voice or saying the things that have never been said is to actually put in writing some of the things that we're saying about ourselves. And what I mean is the mean voice in your head. And sometimes you would say, oh, that's the enemy. I want to tell you, you have your own mean voice in your head. You have your own mean voice. And for many of us, the journey is finding out where does that mean voice come from? And I bet you any money, some of you heard the mean voice talking to you on your way here this weekend. Well, you're just, everyone's going to ignore you. You're just, you know, you just put on 10 pounds and you look terrible and everyone else is thin and, you know. It was really interesting uh, at our retreat last weekend. I had the opportunity to listen in by somebody else volunteering to share what the mean voices were saying. I just couldn't believe it because uh, somebody I know quite well kind of walked in the light and said, you know, I, I come into this room and I just think every woman here has something I don't have. They're just, you know, they're either tall and thin or they... You know, they look really great in their clothes, or they have a great marriage, or they have this. And I come in, and I just feel like, oh, it's painful to be around all these people who are so much better than me. And then, like, moments later, I was over by this other lady, and she said the exact same thing. And they were in two totally different age groups. But she said, you know, I come in here, and I just feel so little. I thought, oh. But, you know, for them, they were able to find out where, what are the feelings that go with that mean voice? How does that mean voice make me feel? And then the next step is to find out where is that coming from? And so I'm uh, going to ask you all to have a pen and paper. And if you want to sit in your chair, you can. If you want to find a place in the room, you can. And what you write does not have to be shown to anyone. This is just for you. This is just between you and God. This is the critical voice in your head, the, the mean voice. <laughs> Andy wants to write mine. <laughs> yeah, some of us have friends that know what our mean voice says to us. Okay, so the first thing I want you to do is I want you to write down on your piece of paper a few sentences that... What is the mean voice saying to you? Like, when I did this exercise, what I wrote down, and it kind of surprised me, but when I thought about it, I'm like, when, is, when have I heard a mean voice in this last week? And I was like, oh, sometimes this voice says to me, everyone's just going to think you're such a show-off. You're just so into yourself. You're always like, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, wow, I actually really hear that voice sometimes, so I wrote it down. 
that make me feel? It makes me feel really ashamed. And uh, I hate that feeling. It makes me feel really worried, worried about what other people are thinking. And I started thinking, why, why do I feel that way? And it, it, I'm just going to take you through the whole progression, and then I'm going to lead you each through it. I had this realization just pressing into that feeling of, of embarrassment that it actually was a feeling of being overexposed, like there's too much exposure, too, too many, I'm too seen. You know, I don't like that feeling. And then as I pressed into that, I had this sudden uh, memory, you know, being a little girl and I was always in the school plays. And, and for me, the longing was always that my dad would come and watch me in a school play. And I, to my memory, never ever once came all the years. And I realized that, you know, dad is there to bring a covering to you. And it was almost like I was the little girl that had no covering. And I had carried that with me. And then as I got older, my dad would make disparaging marks of remarks about my talents, you know, whatever they were. You know, he'd say, oh, you, you know, just don't be telling all those stories. Be quiet, you know. It just, it, and it had got lodged in there, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. As, and it doesn't come to me as this is what my dad was like. It comes to me as this is a voice I use on myself when I'm not paying attention. And it's the, the thing I'm afraid of experiencing from other people when I'm at my most vulnerable. Okay, so that's how this stuff works. And, and once you can get to the bottom of it, um, we'll, we'll get to that stuff in a minute. Is, does everybody understand what it is? And the first step is just write down I'm going to give you a couple of moments to write down what the mean voice says to you. Remember that no one's going to see this but you. And, and try to be really as explicit as you can, exactly how you hear it, and as long as it needs to be. ladies that just got here, we're doing a little exercise. We're writing down, if you ever hear a mean voice in your head saying mean things to you, I'm not talking necessarily about the enemy, I'm talking a self-critical voice. What does that voice say to you? Like, you're too fat, you're ugly, no one likes you. You're annoying, people think you're annoying. What's the, what's the mean voice saying to you? Write it down. Okay, so 
So I want you to take a minute, I want you to write down, how does it make you feel to hear that mean voice? What are the feelings that come? Like, do you feel sad? Do you feel, does it make you feel depressed? Does it make you feel like withdrawing? What are the feelings you have? So press in a little bit more on those feelings. Close your eyes and I want you to just, if you can, allow yourself to connect with that. Like this mean voice makes me feel this. Let yourself feel that, that feeling. Let yourself connect with it as much as you can. You've got to focus on it. what I want you to do now is I want you to this is about integrating your brain in a godly way I want you to allow that part of your brain that's right at the front that's the nice voice that's the voice that you'd use of your daughter or your friend when they've told you about their mean voice you'd say oh no that's not true I want you to write down what that voice would say. Okay, so step one. What would the nice voice say? The voice that you would use on the person you respect the most, that you love the most. What would that voice say to the mean things? Just track with me. Do you get what I'm saying? your most treasured friend or child came to you and told you they felt these things, what would you say to them?
And the last step is to say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Jesus, would you come? Father, would you come? And would you speak into... Would you speak to the mean part? Would you speak to our self-critical voice? And would you come and replace it with something new? Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. to show you kindness, ladies. Your father is the kind voice. Father, I thank you. Just wash over us. And Lord, I want to pray as these ladies go on in this weekend that your kindness would be working this whole weekend. And even, even in the minds of these ladies right now, there would be a grace to to be kind to themselves. Lord, to listen to the kind voice this weekend that comes from you and that comes out of having our whole brain integrated together. Lord, I pray for a grace this weekend that no one would flip their lid. Lord, <laughs> just come and refresh everyone here. Amen. Well, I can't be said I was meant to be done 15 minutes ago, so. <laughs> oh. It's off?